and welcome to another episode of the Barefoot Mediator podcast, news and views from Jane Gunn and guests. In this episode, I'm delighted to have back Bernie Siegel, who is a retired cancer surgeon and author of numerous books, including Love, Medicine and Miracles, a book that changed my life when it fell off the top shelf in the library and hit me on the head. Bernie explains why drawings, dreams, images and feelings, as well as lifestyle changes and personal empowerment, are all part of the healing journey. So, welcome, Bernie Siegel. Thank you. You know, it's hard for me to hold this back. Let me tell you a couple of things that pop into my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One was when I was invited to speak, finally, at Yale, at and I was reciting a poem called Miss G by W.H. Auden. Yes. In it, I mean, what the poem is about is a woman, you know, who goes to the doctor and he discovers cancer. But one line is, childless women get it and men when they retire. It's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. Now, what is yelled at me from the audience at Yale, one of the doctors yells out loud, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. I said, why would he write that if it wasn't his experience? But you see, that's what I used to be banging my head against to, to say, look, this is reality. Why deny it? But again, when you ask doctors, and I've done all these things, draw yourself working as a doctor. Yes. Draw yourself, literally draw your picture of yeah. it. Yeah. This was with 90 medical students. Yes. I was giving them a lecture and I said, draw a picture of yourself working as a doctor. 89 pictures had no patient in it. Really? They were sitting behind a desk with a diploma on the wall, you know, announcing that they're a doctor. One even had only instruments in the picture, no human beings. Yes. And one had the doctor standing with a lady who was in a wheelchair and giving her a tissue. And so that whole class, there was only one doctor really caring about and for a person. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that I say it's medical education is about disease, not about people. And if we treat people, more of them would get better and fewer of them would be diseased. Uh, you know, loving your, well, all these statistics. Harvard students were asked, did your parents love you? This was decades ago, the study. Yeah. Those who said yes, about 24% had suffered a major illness by middle age. Those who said, no, my parents didn't love me, 98% had suffered a major illness. And, you know, those are simple straightforward things and we need to understand yeah. our, you know we all need to grow up with love care about ourselves feel cared for and again what it does to our internal hormones and their environment and immune system and everything else uh, i never stopped talking because all these people i knew keep popping back into my head a woman had polio as a child and she said i never liked my body yeah and then she developed a neurological disease which was she was told is going to take her life 
you know, in a few more months. And she said, I don't want to die disliking myself. So she said, I started lying down naked in front of a mirror and loving myself an inch at a time, beginning with the toes. Really? We went into complete remission. Mm. And believe me, I do that. I don't, I'm not lying naked in front of a mirror. But before I get up in the morning or go to bed at night, you know, I get into bed, I start filling my heart. My technique is to fill my heart with love because I know anatomy. And then I pump it out to all the, you know, places and organs. And I know my body feels better when I do it. Well, it seems to work, Bernie. You're looking in fine fettle. So let me just do a very quick introduction. Uh, Bernie, you uh, you and I met because your book fell on my head in, a, in the library. And it was the hardback copy, by the way. But this is your book, Love, Medicine and Miracles. And I can't remember. Is it 1978 you wrote this book? I, I can't even remember what year it was. Remember, but you were, for me, and I think you probably acknowledge you were the beginning of the sort of patient empowerment movement, if you like. Yeah. You I know? would guess, as a matter of fact, it's probably 87, not 78. Okay. Okay. when I started the groups, yeah. Yes, and you started, uh, so you were working with ca- cancer patients, and tell us the story. I mean, I think you just got frustrated with your own experience, didn't you, there? Yeah, I'll tell you what changed my life. Yeah. I went to a workshop by another physician, hoping to learn more ways of helping cancer patients, because mm. I wasn't the only one getting involved with cancer patients. I mean, Carl Simonton wrote a book called Getting Well Again. You know, so when they would have conferences in the area, I would go. So I learned something. I went to this one and I was shocked. Of all the people there, I was the only doctor in the room. Oh, really? Yeah. Probably 150 people. And I was the only doctor there. And I I was blown away. I said, it's run by a doctor. I thought I was coming to a conference for doctors. The other thing I learned later, how how proud I could be of it, all my patients who had come to the meeting came over and sat with me. Later, I realized most doctors, if their patients saw them, they'd go sit at the other side of the room. And one young woman who was sitting there with me, I said to her, why are you here? You know? And she said, I feel, these are her exact words. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. (laughs) I need to know how to live between office visits. Yes. That changed my entire life, her comment. I came back to the office on Monday and my partner, who was a lot like me, very intuitive, Literally, I opened the door to our office to walk in Monday morning. He screamed, you're gone. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're not the same person you were on Friday. (laughs) You're going to quit surgery. Can you imagine what that meeting and that patient did to me? If he could see that I'm a different person. And a big part, I might say, why somebody who's supposed to die doesn't, they become a different person and the cancer is rejected. I can tell you more of those stories. Um, But when he said that to me, it blew me away. He said, you're going to retire from surgery. 
and he was damn right. Yeah. Within about a year and a half, I had a retirement party and, yeah. you know, started the support groups and lecturing and helping people. And uh, my whole life was changed because of what that young woman said. I need to know how to live between office visits. And I thought, all right, I'll teach people how to live. So, so tell us about that then, Bernie, because your philosophy is really that, you know, life and even illness is about is about living. It isn't about dying, is it? It's about learning how to, to live a better uh, life. Yeah it's, not, uh, yeah, it's enjoying life, enjoying. not trying to avoid dying. We're all going to die someday. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I try to enjoy life. Yeah. And then my body says, all right, we'll keep you going tomorrow. See, the stories, a lawyer never wanted to be a lawyer. He wanted to play a violin. But his parents said, like Donald Trump's parents, we can't be proud of you playing a violin. You know, we want you to be a lawyer. So he became a lawyer. When he learned he had cancer, he quit his practice, became a violinist, got a job in an orchestra, and is alive years later. But the funniest one, because I was always saying to people, do what makes you happy. That became the motto that a lot of the cancer patients put on their refrigerator. Let your heart make up your mind, do what makes you happy. What made him happy when he was told he's gonna be dead in a few months uh, was to move to Colorado. He said, it's so beautiful in the mountains, I wanna die there. I said to the family, be sure and call me for the funeral, because I really feel close to him, and I'll come out to go to the funeral. Several years go by, and I don't get a phone call, and I was really annoyed at the family for ignoring me, so I called up to say, why did you not call me? He answered the phone. Yeah. He said, it, these are his exact words, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. And that's the part. Give your body what I call a live message. Yeah. Yeah. If you, and love it. That, you know, when that lady laid down in front of a mirror and said, I'm loving my naked body inch by inch, it changes her chemistry too. And that's why I tell people to do it. I can feel a difference in my body when I lie down in my bed, you know, whether it's at night, morning, whatever, and start loving. I can feel it. Like saying, thank you. That feels good. Thank you. Yeah. So, Bernie, you know, your philosophy of medicine is is really a, a very different from, from what we might call mainstream medicine. And you, you, for years, have been looking at the link between mind, body, the impact of parenting in particular, and, and love, haven't you? It, well, let me say, it's even between mind and treatment. Mm. I, oh, it was from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that this changed me. I went to one of her workshops. I have a period in my life that most doctors never leave called the cover-up. What was I covering up? All my pain that I was never taught to deal with or to help patients with. So I go to the conference and she gave me a little extra attention as the doctor being there. Bernie or with a Swiss accent, Borony, I, she said, draw me a picture. So I drew her an outdoor scene from a meditation, all fiction. She picks up my paper and says, what are you covering up? I said, what are you talking about? 
You used a white crayon on a white piece of paper to make snow on a mountain. It's already white. <laughs> and I knew I was covering up all my feelings. Yeah. And then there were, why is eight important? Well, why are you asking that? You drew eight trees. And I had been doing the work with cancer patients for eight months. I mean, she was asking me all these questions and I couldn't believe that they had something to do with this crazy picture that meant nothing to me. It was just from my imagination. But that's when you see, again, I went back to the hospital with a box of crayons and yeah. I would say to people, draw yourself in the operating room, draw yourself getting chemotherapy, uh, or even if they were saying, what treatment should I get? I say, draw your options. I'll look at them. Draw your home and family. It didn't matter what it was. Then we sat down and talked. And that transformed all the doctors who thought I was crazy because then it became interesting and fascinating. And uh, one of them literally created a coloring book because I did a lot of children's surgery. And so he made a book for the kids to fill in before surgery. And then we knew how they were going to do what was going to happen. And the thing that got people laughing, like one boy came in to have a circumcision. And he said, this is before and this is after. And he handed us two drawings. They were both of airplanes in profile. Mm -hmm. One airplane was circumcised and the other wasn't. So he called it airplanes, but it was obvious to everybody in the operating room, he drew two penises and the place was laughing. And, uh, but it showed people that within the patients, you know, in their consciousness was all this knowledge and information. So it was easy to tell which treatment was right for you, you know, and I don't make up any of these stories. You know, when a lady draws the devil giving me poison, I don't think that's a good choice. And others have drawn chemotherapy, literally coming out of God, flowing out of God. They don't have side effects, mm. you know? And so those are the things I learned and help people to fit that into their beliefs and tell them how it can make such a difference. See, it's when the other doctors and nurses saw the difference. Yeah, exactly. They began to appreciate Siegel may be crazy, but he's right. And so they loved taking care of my patients because they did well and were easier to care for with their drawings and everything else. Yes. Yeah. So what you've been doing there is helping people to explore how they're feeling what's going on inside, it, even for you as a doctor, to sort of, so to be able to draw that and to represent that and it is a way of discovering what's really going on inside, I guess. But there are other techniques you use as well, aren't there? Yeah, and it's the patient drawing it. Yeah. You see, it's not me telling you, this is what you ought to do, take this, it's good for you. Yeah, um, yeah I'd say draw the picture and then either change your images you know, stop seeing it as the devil giving you poison. That's what one woman drew for chemotherapy. Mm. Devil giving me poison. Mm. I mean, what are you doing? And so again, uh, what a difference it makes. And uh, uh, one other story that popped into my head, how much control we have. Eight-year-old named Amber had cancer. 
a mother was literally dragging this kid all around the world trying to cure her. And I was helping her take care of her daughter and support her. And I finally said to her, oh, because the daughter drew this picture while she was in the hospital. And when I went to see her, the paper was lying on the bed. And it showed a purple like cloud in the sky with Amber's name in it. And purple is a spiritual color. Mm -hmm. So I know Amber was saying, I'm heading to heaven. I'm going to die. So I showed it to her mother. I said, take her home and love her. You know, stop treating the cancer, love her. So, well, sometimes doing that is when they recover. But Amber went home with her mom and eight days, oh, I have to tell you this too. In the picture, there were eight like pretty flowers, straight stems up and down. I said, I don't understand what that is, you know, these pretty flowers. Well, eight days later, my phone rang. Bernie, yeah, what is it? Amber woke up today and said, Mom, it's your birthday. I'm dying today as a gift to free you from all the trouble. Boom. Then we understood the drawing she yeah. did. And her mother gave it to me to hang in my house, and it is hanging here. But how easier, much easier it made it for her mother. The one other, let me get more mystical. Um, I started hearing voices telling me to do certain things. And, you know, I began to pay attention to them. And I learned eventually it was my angel named George. Because I met him in a meditation. He said, my name is George. I mean, I thought it was all crazy stuff, you know. Until when I was out lecturing and I realized you're not paying attention to the notes you made in the outline. You're just talking. And I thought, yeah, but it sounds good. I'll just keep talking. People came up to me after the lecture and said, I've heard you before. That was better than usual. And there was a man standing in front of you for the entire lecture. So I drew his picture for you. And it was my angel because I knew what he looked like. I met him in a meditation. And the classic was a mystic named Alga Worrell. She and her husband wrote a book uh, about their experiences, Alga and Ambrose Worrell, because they were considered crazy when, you know, by their family when they were kids and seeing things. And, but people learned they're not crazy, you know. <laughs> well, one, I, I'll give you an example, because she said that. They went to a house that the family was going to sell. And she said in the living room, Alga said, who's that lady sitting on the sofa? Well, the house was empty. And she and the family said, there's nobody sitting on the sofa. Oh, yes, there is. And she described the lady. And everybody said, oh, my God, that's grandma. She's the one who owned the house who died. See? So I'm speaking at a Christian funeral. I'm Jewish. And after the funeral and everybody's, I mean, leaving, you know, the service and everything, Alga was, knew the person who died and came to the funeral. So she came over to me and said, Bernie, yeah, are you Jewish? I said, what are you asking me that for? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral. No, there's a rabbi standing next to you. Uh, yes. And it was George. Yes. 
she described him in every detail because he was dressed, you know, in garments as a rabbi, uh, prayer cap and other, you know, prayer garments. And it blew my mind away. But I realized you can't deny this. And the other thing that I really tell people is if you have a mystical experience, do not hide it from people. Yes, they'll say, oh, that's, well, like my experience at Yale. Oh, he's crazy. He's nuts. But then something happens in their life and you get the call. Hey, I got to tell you something. What happened to me? And so I say, don't hide it. Don't be afraid of people saying you're nuts, you're crazy. Because what happened at the hospital and in my office, total strangers came in and said, I know you're not a normal doctor, so I had to come here because I can talk to you. And at the hospital, a woman who had a heart-lung transplant called me. She said, everybody thinks I'm insane. But the person who donated their heart and lungs is talking to me when I go to sleep at night. And, you know, everybody said, that's crazy, Kevin. Well, she told me the name that the person told her. We called the family, had them go through all the obituaries in the New England area. And sure enough, there was his name. And called them and they said, yes, yes, he's the donor for her. And oh, and she had taken a motorcycle ride when she got out of the hospital. And they said, yes, he loved motorcycles and died in a motorcycle accident. And her book is The A Change of Heart by Claire Sylvia. It's incredible because people share these things. I couldn't deny them. Yeah. You know, nor of George talking to me. Let me just give you one more example to benefit. The day my father was going to die, I was out taking a walk before I went to the hospital. And I heard George's voice. Bernie, do you know how your parents met? I said, no. He said, then ask your mother when you get to the hospital. I walk into the hospital room, ready to say I love you and hug. But instead, what pops out of my mouth is, how did you two meet? And I was going to apologize, feeling... I was being rude, but my mother suddenly sat up, said, oh, I met some girls on the beach during a vacation. I didn't know. I learned they had a terrible reputation and boys came down to the beach and tossed coins and your father lost and got me. Well, my father died laughing. Yes. yes. The whole family, because all the stories my mother was telling and he was enjoying. And again, his consciousness when the last person who said they're coming to see him before he dies entered the room that's when he took his last breath and he had no way of knowing who was coming but those are the things that let you know that consciousness has a lot more to do with our lives and futures than just the physical body I quite agree. Uh, Bernie, tell us more about laughter, because I know you've written and I've listened to one of your your own recordings about the value of laughter in healing. Well, it changes your chemistry. You know, when you're laughing, the stress hormone levels go away, immune function goes up, all kinds of wonderful things begin to happen. Mm. So I didn't mind acting crazy in the operating room, you know, to help patients. And I did a lot of children's surgery, pediatric surgery. And, well, you know, you got a room full of kids. You can play and have fun. And then I found everybody started acting like a child in the operating room, the nurses, the doctors. And instead of complaining as they used to, 
they were having fun now talking about their childhood, what happened, and uh, and everybody did well. And it impressed, because this is a quote from the nurses, your patients are a problem. I said, what is it? <laughs> they refuse pain medication. I said, did it ever occur to you they're not hurting? And they looked at me like, what are you, insane? You just operate on them and they're not hurting. But I realized how powerful you know, the humor is, the love is, all those things. And uh, yeah, I, I have, I, because of my talking, I have gotten into conversations with patients and operated on them without anesthesia. Yeah. Because I forgot that we hadn't done it, you know? And the nurses would be waving their arms trying to get my attention to show me I hadn't injected local anesthetic I hadn't done anything and I always wondered what are they getting so crazy about and when we were done they'd say you didn't do anything I said yeah but he wasn't hurting because we were all hypnotized enjoying ourselves sharing stories and uh, they learned that made a hell of a difference so then the anesthesiologist the nurses stopped telling me I was crazy because my patients were all doing better. I started playing music in the operating room. Ah, yes. And I followed your example, because when I had my hip replaced, I asked the surgeon to play music for me too, and we chose the music. So that was brilliant. And also, I didn't need any pain relief when I came around Mm -hmm. from my surgery. So exactly followed that example. And uh, so- See, the example is what gets to change the doctor. Yeah. Not are saying, why don't you do this? It's good. It really works. And they say, that's crazy. How could it work? But yeah. when you did it, then they were impressed and they weren't arguing with you, even though, you know, I couldn't explain it scientifically, but it's okay. It works. Yeah. It does work. It does work. So tell me what it is you say, Bernie, to people who say, you saved my life. What is it you say to them? Well, I say, no, I didn't. You saved it. Mm. yeah, yeah. I, I'm like a coach yes but you have to show up for practice yeah, yeah. so if yeah. you had that happen don't take my credit you know look at me as someone who was showing and coaching and you had the talent and brought it into your life and then those things happened and I know you've said before, Bernie, that life is about performing. Tell us about that. What, what is it that life is about performing? And I don't know saying that word, but it, you know, it's what we're here to do. Let me say, I, I didn't realize till I grew up how lucky I was to have the parents I had. Mm. I grew up with three messages. Mm-hmm. If I came home and said to them, I have some choices to make at school. I don't know what to do. Do what makes you happy. And I used to say, God damn it, they're no help. You know, I had to figure out what's going to make me happy. I had a horrible day at school. Everything went wrong. Oh, God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. Ah, did you listen? Everything went wrong. It's horrible. Yes, God is redirecting you. Uh, You're no help. And I'd go in my bedroom and talk to God. And I always shut the door because I didn't want people saying, who are you talking to? And I'd say, God, they'd say, you need a psychiatrist, (laughs) you know. But I realized my mother was right that so many times things happened 
and redirected me. Yeah. And the biggest, maybe I, the last was, you know, if you live in your heart, magic happens. Yes. Let your heart make up your mind. Yes. And we're here to help other people. Now that came from my father because his father died when he was just a kid, leaving a wife and six kids due to tuberculosis. Mm. And my father said it was hell to survive. Six children, the mother, uh, we had nothing. But he finished the story with, but it taught me what was important about life. And that was helping other people. I, I have to say, he helps me when people hurt me. Yeah. Um, the most recent was a friend of mine told me she had a friend who needed several thousand dollars. I won't get into the amount. Mm -hmm. And he sent me a letter telling me exactly when he'll repay it and what everything. So I lent him the money and he has never paid me a penny nor answered my emails or anything else. But it, what helped me is my father, you know, and his philosophy. So if I made this guy's life better, fine. You did something nice for somebody rather than I'm going to take him to court. I'll sue him. I'll get it. Who knows if I helped him get some sleep and, and, you know, survive, uh, let it be, let it be. And, uh, yeah, what I love is my sense of humor. You know, I might email him, not anymore, but I, cause it happened several years ago. I'd say, do me a favor, buy a lottery ticket. If you win, you can pay me back you know, <laughs> like that. Cause what I'm looking for is to make friends with him. That's what I feel sad about. He doesn't answer me now that he's taking my money. But if he emailed me and we talked and became friends, I'd be repaid, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I get that, Bernie. And so you were very lucky with your parents. I, you know, can hear that. And and I know you, you've been parent to five children and uh, several grandchildren. But I know you talk, Bernie, about people reparenting themselves if they haven't been so fortunate. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's something I thought about this morning. Uh, our house was always a zoo. <laughs> uh, my angel used to send me to the animal shelter. Now, that sounds crazy, but I'd go out of the house in the morning to get in the car, and I'd hear his voice say, go to the animal shelter. And it wasn't every morning. And every time I did that, it would always be an animal with a symbolic, significant name who had just gotten there. It was incredible. You know, to walk in to the animal shelter in our town and have a dog sitting by the door and say, what's his name? And they tell me and they say, he's only been here 15 minutes. <laughs> and I say, I'm taking him home. Yeah, yeah. Because of his name. I mean, I'll give you an example. My father's name was Simon. Mm. And you'd be amazed at how many Simons I took home. <laughs> and I thought maybe they've learned my father's name and are playing games with me. But I learned they weren't. All these, the creatures that were brought in, several of them had a name, Simon. So cats, dogs, they came home with me. And, uh, oh, and one was a big Alaskan husky um, whose name was oh, Brady, Brady. 
And in a past life, I was an Irish knight mm. and with, whose name was Brady. And I walk up and this enormous dog is sitting there. I said, what's his name? His name is Brady. Oh, I'll take him along. We had to bring him back after a week because, I mean, as my wife said, honey, he's scaring every creature in the house when he runs around, knocking everybody over. And I couldn't keep him in the front yard because he would squeeze through the bed door and go back in the house. So I took him back and brought home other creatures in his place. Um, I mean, I got him adopted again, but it was so funny. Uh, my wife said, we can't keep him. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Uh, and then tell me, you've had this, um, you've had this term carefrontation. What does carefrontation mean? Well, it's confronting people, but in a caring way. Mm. You know, you're challenging them in a sense to get them to see what's important. And I do a lot of work with drawings and, and that's an example. You know, people may draw things, let's say something in black. And I say, what's going on here? This is a color of grief and loss. And, and they don't realize that they're not thinking about it, you know, in that way, but it gets them to stop and think about why did I pick that color? Let's say it could be your doctor or your parents uh, that they draw them in black. And then I say, you got a problem here. See? But on the other hand, you also can teach them that, what was it? That, oh, something, oh yeah, under pressure becomes a diamond. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that point I'd make to them, you can change it by using it. And one of the things that impressed the hell out of me was just saying to people, what are you experiencing? Not your diagnosis. What would you describe the experience of the headache like? Oh, pressure. What are some of the other classical ones? But it, it, every time they'd come up with the word, I would say, how does that word fit your life? What's the pressure in your life? Mm -hmm. It turned out to be her marriage. And she, this was a lady in the emergency room who was in such pain, I was trying to help her. And it turned out the pressure was her marriage. Her headache disappeared in about 20 minutes and she went home to straighten it out. So when I would say to people, well, lady with cancer, what's going on? Failure. How does that fit your life? Well, my body has failed me. That's not my question. Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. Okay. Now, some people with life-threatening illnesses will say, it's a wake-up call, new beginning, because it gets them to redirect their life, you know, become their therapy. But that's why that word is enormously helpful. And, and I don't deny it to myself. I mean, I've been traveling around the globe lecturing and I don't know, it's probably 20 years ago, I began to have dizzy spells, vertigo. You know, get out of bed and it was hard to stand up. I go out to lecture and I have problems. And one morning I got up in the bedroom and I'm dizzy and I said to myself, hey, stupid, do what you tell your patients. What's going on? I said, well, the world is spinning around. Yeah, you're going too many damn places. You're exhausting yourself. 
look at your calendar. It was amazing. Uh, you know, in a whole month, there might be two days I wasn't doing something. Mm. Um, so it said, you got to slow down. Take it easy. Yeah. And then all those symptoms run away. So I know in the work that I do in conflict resolution, we often say the answers are either in the room or they're within ourselves. You know, the answers are there already and we simply need to find them. We need to surface them. So I guess you're saying the same, really. We, yeah. And the children need love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can, you know, get angry at your child, but they need to know you love them. You don't like what they're doing, but you love them. Mm. And that I found was really such a basic need for everybody. Oh, let me, uh, I have a book, 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. I have that book, Bernie, yeah. yeah. Every day you read. I don't know if you remember this one. We were in a very heavy traffic one summer up in Cape Cod, and Behind our car is another car with a young man and his girlfriend sitting there. I could see in the mirror, but he was blowing the horn constantly and screaming and cursing about the traffic. And it was like he was blaming me, you know, I'm right in front of him. I can't move out of the way, get away from him. The traffic was so heavy. So I get out of the car with our kids always yelling, Dad, they can have a gun, don't do this, because it's not the first time I've ever done this. <laughs> and I walk up to his car, and the window was partway down, so I could talk to him. I said, I want you to know I love you. I'm sorry your parents don't. Mm. And I went back to my car. Mm. What do you think he did? He made a U-turn and drove away in complete silence. Mm where before he was blowing his horn, screaming, everything. And I, I'm sure he went home to talk to his parents. Yeah. And I've done that on the street other times when there have been violent people. And I know I'm crazy, but, you know, they're out there screaming and yelling and everybody's frightened. You, you know, you're in a parking lot or a store. And I go over and say, I want you to know I love you. And they've always stopped screaming and walked away. Disarming, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say, I'm sorry for what's going on in your life. I just want you to know I love you. And people in the store or in the street run up to me and say, oh my God, that's incredible. Thank you. I couldn't believe what happened. Yeah. So don't be afraid to say I love you to people. It's a hell of a powerful weapon. And what is it that's bothering you? How would you describe it that we need to eliminate from your life? And boy, people's eyes open, you know, it's like they walk out of the office and go home because they know what they need to do now that you've said that to them. So, Bernie, how, how do you think medicine is developing? You, you've been working in this way for, well, you know, since the 1970s, 1980s. Are, are, are doctors taking on board your way of working more? Or well, less? I think, yeah, I mean... There's so much greater reception for this kind of thinking, belief, um, therapy. Whereas I say back in the 70s and 80s, I was nuts. If I was asked to speak, it was so people could argue with me, <laughs> you know, and tell me I'm crazy. Yeah. Uh, and then the shift occurred. 
You see, as I said, that's why the author, Solzhenitsyn, talks about self-induced healing in his book. He doesn't write down, oh, it says here there are spontaneous remissions. See, if your patient has a spontaneous remission, how the hell can you learn what that's from? But if you said, you've had self-induced healing, what have you been doing? Yes. And the symbol in the book, that's why it's so beautiful, a rainbow-colored butterfly flooded out of the book, and they all held up their cheeks for healing touches and flew past. Why a rainbow-colored butterfly? Mm. First of all, you bust out of your cocoon. Mm. The rainbow is your life in order. And what's the butterfly a symbol of? Transformation. You know, from the caterpillar to the butterfly. You bust free and you become this beautiful butterfly with everything in harmony. Absolutely wonderful. And Bernie, you've started working with your grandson, Charlie, haven't you? Yes. Yes. Tell He's me about that. He's a miracle as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Um, because we were emailing, I don't know about what, but I started emailing him some of my things and my feelings, and he emailed me back. And our poetry, I didn't know, you know, he didn't know I wrote some and he wrote some. And it was like we were the same person. He's into health. Um, you know, a lot of the physical, I, I don't know what you call them, um, exercises and practices. He's, I don't know whether he's in Japan now or not, but he's going there for another meeting. And so he, he's into health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can, on my website, not so much that, but my uh, Facebook, Charlie often puts pictures, photographs that he's done of nature because he's very much into that too. And yes. they're beautiful, you know. His photographs are amazing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely amazing. So that's wonderful and lovely that you are working together with one of I've got three grandchildren now, I think since we last spoke, actually. So perhaps there'll be an opportunity to work with them at some stage. I, I certainly love painting and drawing with my grandchildren. Uh, well, let me tell you, I'm glad you mentioned that again. I was an artist as a kid. I was always drawing pictures. But I didn't know that there's any way you could earn a living as an artist. Mm. I thought, but you got to use your hands. So I said, oh, I'll become a surgeon. I can help people with my hands. Um, If I'd known then what I know today, I would have just started painting pictures. So. Well, I'm glad you didn't. Yeah. But I painted their portraits all through the house. Every child, grandchild, myself, my wife, all of us. I painted myself when this happened. It was really hysterical. I came up the driveway back to the house at night from the hospital, and every living creature in the house was running away. And I don't have time to tell you, but we had 20 or 30 animals of every kind living in the house with five kids. And they were all running away from the house. So I thought, oh, my God, I wonder what happened. So I stopped the car, lowered the window and screamed, what's going on? Is there a fire? What happened? I heard this little squeaky voice. No, we're tired of sitting for hours for you to paint our picture. So we want to get away from the house. (laughs) And I busted out laughing. Yes. I said, all right, all right, I'll paint you know, myself, 
picture myself. I'll get a mirror, put it up. You can all come back in the house. They all turned around and came in. I didn't realize I was torturing them by getting them <laughs> to sit for hours while I painted their portrait. I'll paint more quickly, Bernie. Yeah. yeah. But every kid, every grandchild, every pet, there are paintings of everything all over the walls. Wonderful. But what did I paint myself as? A surgeon in a cap, mask, and gown. Uh-huh. And I labeled it the high priest. I don't know why, I just did. But as my life evolved, I realized that that's a sick portrait. Nobody knows it's you. You're all covered up. And it was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, when I used a white crayon on a white piece of paper, who said, what are you covering up? You don't need a white crayon. The paper's already white. Mm -hmm. And I realized what I was covering up were all my feelings as a surgeon that I didn't know how to deal with. Things I couldn't cure, complications, what was happening to all these nice people, you know, why did God give them diseases, whatever. And that painting is part of my cover-up phase in my life to hide things. Now, the other thing I couldn't understand is where the hell did I name it the high priest from? Makes no sense at all. And when I had to hang it in the show, you know, that was at the hospital, uh, paintings that the doctors had done, I thought, what should I do with that name? But I left it on the painting. You know, it was like a little, um, what should I say, a little piece of uh, wood that, it was printed on the high priest and tucked on there. But then I came across Jung. He's a great savior. He said, the reason monks shave their head is symbolic of their uncovering their spirituality. Mm -hmm. Now, what had I done that same year I did the painting? Had the barber shaved my head. Yes. And I really had to pressure him because he knew I was crazy and that his kids would beat him up. My kids would beat him up if he did one more thing like that. But he shaved my head. And it was years later that I realized that was part of your uncovering of who you are, what you are. And the same thing that once I shaved my head, it was like telling mystical stories. People knew he's not normal. We can talk to him. You know, we got our hair, and in those years, the hair was down to the shoulders of all our kids. And I shaved my head, and everybody at the hospital knew, oh, you can talk to him. He's nuts. He won't judge you. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, I love this, Bernie. I, you know, and I, I take from you that it's okay to be crazy, that, you know, people will then uh, come to you, that we need lots of love and laughter in our life, and that we need to discover who we are and what's going on inside for all of us. And yeah, we can do that. A wisdom that's in us. Yes. We need to quiet our minds, stop the thinking, and let the wisdom come forth. I don't know how much time you have, but one more story about yeah. that coloring book that was made in the OR, because I did a lot of children's surgery. And on the front page, it said, I mean, it was a little booklet, about five or six pages, each one with drawings of what they would go through in the operating room from coming in to going home. The first page said, you'll meet someone called an anesthesiologist 
who's dressed in an outfit that looks like green pajamas. The child drew him in red. Mm. I said to the anesthesiologist, turn to the last page. That's a danger sign. If he draws himself in purple, he's going home. He's not going to have surgery because he's telling us I'm going to die in the operating room. And he said to me, the anesthesiologist, Bernie, that's amazing. The kid knows something. His mother has muscular dystrophy. It's a genetic defect. If he has any of those genes, he could have an adverse reaction to muscle relaxants and not breathe. You know, it could paralyze his muscles. And I said, turn to the last page. If he draws himself purple, he's going home. He drew himself with basically red, you know, that's saying, I don't like this. I don't want <laughs> have an operation. You know, it's a, an emotional color. So we went ahead with the surgery and he went home fine. But that's the kind of thing that changes people. Say Siegel isn't crazy anymore. Or messages from the dead. I had one patient who came in and said, I'm a mystic and I brought you a message from a dead patient. And she told me his name and his message. And I knew who he was, somebody who had died about 10 days before. I called his wife and she shrieked. I said, I didn't call to upset you. You're not upsetting me. That's what Frank said all that time about you. I can't buy the package. <laughs> he was another doctor who didn't believe all the stuff I was saying. So he used to say, I can't buy the package. Yeah. And um, then he shows up in this mystical sense and it changed everybody's beliefs. But I wasn't afraid to say to people, oh, you know, my husband died, my wife died, my kids died. I, uh, I said, you want a message from them? Call my friend Monica. And nobody ever called and said she's crazy. And I can tell you, my mother-in-law and my wife have died. My mother-in-law is an opera singer. A couple of days after she dies, the phone rings. Hi, Bernie. I got a message from a lovely lady who was an opera singer, my mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. And when my wife died, within 48 hours, Monica said, Bernie, she's fine. She's back with family. Everything's okay. And I knew that's true. And the other mystical things that she still communicates with me through numbers, uh, like we were married on 7-Eleven. I found more dimes and pennies all over the house, in the, even under the mattress in the bed when I was fixing the bed. I mean, places that you cannot say somebody dropped them or put them. And her birth date is 9-9. Oh, let me see if I have that. Oh, maybe, I guess I may have left it in the other room. But, oh, wait, maybe it's, no, it's not under there. The reason I got blown away, because nine months after my wife died, ah, I found them. I, I had pain in my heart, mm -hmm. like somebody stabbed me with a knife. Mm -hmm. The same thing that happened when I found her dead. I mean, she died in her sleep. Mm -hmm. And when I picked up her hand to wake her up and it was ice cold, mm -hmm. uh, I knew she had died and I could feel the pain in my chest. So nine months later, my heart beat gets a, you know, crazy rhythm. I go to the emergency room and walk in, just walk in the door. And a man yells, put him in room nine. I thought, oh, my wife's here. I don't have to worry about anything. Then they said to me, 
we don't have a room for you yet in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I thought, that's bizarre. Not one bed, you know, in the whole hospital for a male. But the next day, they came and said, we got the room, room 819. Mm -hmm. It's up to 99. Mm -hmm. This is the number on my identification and the wristband that they give you when you get to the hospital. So it's put on you so everybody can look at this and know who you are as a patient. Something happened. So my identification. And eight is a new beginning. That's the, that's the meaning of that number. Like seven days and then a new beginning. Here's my number. Three, eight, nine, three, nine, six, six. Everything adds up to nine. And it's just bizarre. But yet, when I saw that, I knew you're okay. Don't worry. And uh, it's been good. So I've kept this. <laughs> yeah, I can see why you have. Uh, it's just a delight to catch up with you again, Bernie. Thank you so much. I'm so glad your book fell on my head. Um, and uh, I've never thought you were crazy. And I'm sure many people now realize that you're not at all crazy after all, right. all these years. Isn't and that afraid <laughs> when you know the truth and you don't have any fear, you keep speaking it. I agree. And other people end up living it and knowing you're telling the truth because they're experiencing it. So I've had no trouble because of all the mystical experiences I've had. Do you have time for one more? One more story, Bernie, but I love that idea. We keep- A patient of mine had cancer. She was dying. She said, I don't want to die without straightening out my relationship with my mother. Mm. So she went to the Hawaiian island of Kauai, where her mother lived and died there. Mm -hmm. A year later, Bobby and I went there to give a lecture. We go into a store in the airport when we got off the plane and there's a butterfly in it. Mm. And we're always rescuing animals. So Bobby puts her hand up and the butterfly flew over to her hand and landed on it. And then we went out of the store, expecting it to fly away. And it got in the car, went to the hotel, sitting on my wife's shoulder, up to our room. It was, you know, I knew that had to be a patient of mine, you know, whose mother who had died there on the island. I mean, I knew it. But as the evening approached, I said to my wife, honey, you can't sleep with a butterfly. Go out on the porch and brush it off so we can go to bed. She said, okay, I did. I said, look at your other shoulder. She had done that. It came back in on the other shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I finally just started talking to the butterfly. I'm like a person. I said, look, we have to go to bed. I don't want to crush you. I want to take you to the workshop, tell people about you. And the butterfly went on the table and stayed there when we went to bed. And then it flew over our heads. I mean, I talked to the audience, so to speak, and told them the story about the butterfly and the patient. And it flew over our heads from nine to five. Amazing. When I said, we're done, you know, with the workshop, then the butterfly flew up and away. Yeah. But since then, many of the same breed butterflies have come to our house and visited with us. It's just incredible. And, incredible. you know, you can't, like when you find a butterfly in your house, how the hell did it get in here? 
you know, that we wouldn't notice it. And uh, then I found the, the body, so to speak, a dead one sitting at our front door, just lying there right at the front door. Um, you know, many times I said that they are flying around and coming in and out, but it's the same butterfly, the black and yellow, I forgot what they call it. Maybe it's a monarch or something. Mm -hmm. um, but when I see it, I know, and I talk to it like a person. Because when there was one in the house, again, I, it was banging on the window. I knew it wanted to go out. So I put my hand up, flew over, and landed on my hand. I walk outside, hold the hand up, and flies away. I mean, I didn't say a word to it. And it knew I was there to help it and do it. And uh, I'm a believer in what I experience. Probably that's the best way to put all this. If you experience something, it's true. Yes. And Don't then you share it. it with others. And you share that truth, and then people know you're not crazy. Yeah, and the world will change slowly. Nobody can explain creation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Mediator podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, and download a PDF copy of my book, How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom, please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video. The link is in the show notes.